everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. also want to thank everybody that's been spreading the word, telling your friends about the show, subscribing on Apple Podcasts, uh, listening to us wherever you listen. We really appreciate all the love and all the messages I've been getting. You can send them to me, krasplus1 at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at kras with a Z plus one. And yeah, it's been really great doing this show. We're at episode 33 already. And uh, I'm just really thankful to have started this podcast and had such a great response and been able to speak to so many great artists as well and learn from them. And today is no different. We have an amazing musician, an amazing person on the show, Denise Kaufman from the group Ace of Cups. For those of you that don't know about this group, all-female band from the late 60s that was formed in San Francisco and played with all of the legends of, of that time period and of that area. They opened for Jimi Hendrix. They opened for the Grateful Dead, played with Quicksilver Messenger Service. And we're part of that incredible scene of San Francisco in the late 60s. I feel like if I could just get my hands on a time machine, that's exactly where I would go and exactly where I'd want to live in that time period in the Bay. Denise was also part of the Merry Pranksters and was involved with Ken Kesey. She was also a known activist in the Bay Area and was actually arrested at the free speech movement at UC Berkeley. But what I love about this story is that 50 years later, the Ace of Cups actually reunited to make their first album. They broke up back in the early 70s for various different reasons. Some of them became mothers, different jobs. They never really got the record deal that they wanted. But over the years, their legend continued. In 2011, they actually played Wavy Gravy's 75th birthday at the Save a Foundation benefit, which inspired them to start talking about music again and reconnecting. And eventually they were offered a record deal from High Moon Records. Fast forward to 2018 and they actually released their first album, produced by Dan Shea and featured a ton of different guest artists, Bob Weir, Charlie Musselwhite, Steve Kimmock, Taj Mahal, and a bunch of other great guests. And they recorded so much music during these sessions that they actually released two albums. The second album came out in September of 2020. The albums have gotten a ton of praise. They've done live performances and it doesn't seem like they're stopping anytime soon. I love this story and I love that they got their due 50 years later and now are making the music they always wanted to make. I'm really excited to get into this interview, but first we're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I want to give a quick shout out to Osiris Media. They helped me put this show together and they've got a lot of other great content. You can check it all out at OsirisPod.com. All right, let's get into it. I loved talking to this woman. She's an activist, a bass player, a singer songwriter, and a part of the group Ace of Cups. I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Denise Kaufman. I wanted to start by saying that I've been listening to the albums and Life in Your Hands, that song with Taj Mahal, um, is so cool. And like, I love the production of it and the intimacy of it and the message. And I like the video a lot too. So wanted to tell you that. I'm sure we'll get into more about that in a minute, but um, I love that song. And I, it was perfect because like I came home um, from from the hospital with her and then, you know, spoke to Rebecca and then started listening to your guys' music and that one came on and it was... It, it hit in the right way. <laughs> <laughs> 
when I think about, um, you know, I'm, I, I've talked to a lot of people on this show and we always talk about what it would be like to be in a certain era at a certain time in a certain place. Like what John Schofield was on, we talked about the forties in New York and one of the places I'd always, I, if I got to pick a place and time that I could be, it would be San Francisco in the late sixties. And I've been so, um, just just so obsessed with learning about that time what it did what what it meant musically politically culturally so I wanted to just talk to you quickly just a little bit about just being in San Francisco in that time and if you could encapsulate a little bit of what it felt like to be a part of that scene well you know I'm gonna even say more of the let's say early to mid mid 60s right right you know Really like 64, 63, 64, 65, 66. Yeah. Um, it was a good time. It was time. just this time. By the time kind of the word got out, it changed, you know? Right, right. So that was already, just certainly by 68, you know? Right. Kind of, where that song came out about if you go to San Francisco, you should wear some flowers in your hair. Right, that was, right beginning of the end yeah <laughs> right it always is right once everyone finds out first off you know how you how you got there and were you did you get that were you started you start playing music at an early age and then that kind of drew you um into wanting to be in a band like did you grow up around music you know my early experiences were with a, uh the San Francisco Conservatory of Music on piano my family all we all sang my mother had a really trained voice and uh my dad had you know couldn't hear a melody but had a great memory for lyrics and words so um and you know in those days what my parents used to do would be to get together with some of their friends and we'd go up to across the bay up to mount tamalpais where some of their friends lived They'd make a little fire outside, a little fire pit, sing from the fireside book of folk songs, you know, with right. Uncle Max's accordion, you know. Right, right. <laughs> so early memories are just people singing together. And I love group singing. Your, I saw that Yorma said a really cool thing about the Ace of Cups. He said the Ace of Cups really have that kind of blood harmony thing that usually only happens with people that grew up in families and sang together. Uh, so that, that, obviously encapsulates that and I feel like when I listen to your guys's music it's very much friends in a room playing music and that's I mean I grew up with that too my family did that all of the bands that I've ever had were very much friendships first so I guess that leads me to you know meeting the band members were you guys friends first I know you guys were all kind of part of the same scene but were they were they were actually I now that I think about it, you were kind of the last member to join. Is that correct? I came up out of, you know, I'd already been on the bus with Keezy right. and the Pranksters. Yeah. I made a single when I was 18. I wrote oh. a song that that is now sort of a proto-punk song, I would say. Wow. But it never got to be on the radio because uh, Bill Gavin, who said at that time what got on AM radio, which all, was all there was right. in San Francisco oh, and when I made that song, said women couldn't say that. Uh, wow. So it couldn't be on the radio. It was too raw. And so that had already happened. I'd been arrested in the free speech movement. I kind of grew up in the social justice sensibility. Right, of course. With my family. And so... And then I was in a band, the, the first, the last band I was in before the Ace of Cups turned into Moby Grape. It was the guys oh, that- Oh, wow, okay. 
um, some of those guys and Jerry, Jerry Miller and Don Stevenson and Chuck Stakes, who was okay, yeah. uh, Charlie Toning. Um, and so when I met the Ace of Cups, I met, actually, I met Mary Ellen at a party on New Year's Eve, the, you know, when it was just about to be January 1st, 1967, or midnight, I met Mary playing some blues in an upstairs bedroom at this party. And I had a harmonica with me, which I always do. And we just started jamming. And um, she invited me. To, she said, I have some friends and we're starting an all-women's band. And what you should come over and Ashbury. And I was like, that sounds weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> My yeah. first reaction. I've never seen an all-women's rock band. You know, I'm, I knew women who sang and right, who were right. featured in dance. But I really didn't, you know, I certainly hadn't at that point seen like a woman kick-ass drummer or anything like that. Right. But right. I went over and met. And we just hit it off. That was January 67. What was your primary instrument um, before that? Guitar and harmonica. And playing, and what were your influences that wanted you, that made you want to play in those early days? In the early days, um, I mean, vocally and musically, you know, after I kind of got out of the conservatory music, which I didn't, I mean, I couldn't play one thing from that era, but right. that was influential. Um, and I was also in a company called the San Francisco Children's Opera Company, which uh -huh. did light, original light operas, like operettas, um, kind of like Gilbert and Sullivan, written by the people who ran it, the Gingolds, who were, um, they were, they had been refugees from the Nazis. They were from Vienna and, and, and Mr. Gingold played piano for Bertolt Brecht. Oh. Um, so they came out of that world. So they were big influences. I was in their company for about you know, seven years. Um, but, you know, musically, when I got to start on guitar, um, folk music at the time. Right. Um, and, you know, it kind of led me the kind of more popular folk music, like the Kingston Trio and the Limelighters and things like that, led me, you know, into... Um, the New Lost City Ramblers, Pete right. Seeger. Right. Pete Seeger was, I got, he used to come and play at a uh, preschool in my area. So I oh, was around wow. him some. So, you know, the, the kind of starting in folk music, then it kind of led me into the child ballads and, and um, you know, the music of the British Isles and right, right. Irish music. So I was there listening to that in early when right. I first started guitar. And then, you know, and then doo-wop music um, right, and, right. And, and sort of the popular music that I was into was, you know, everything from Elvis to kind of an R&B, more sensibilities, a lot of harmonies, I, you know, some of the girl groups at the time with yeah. their great harmonies. So that was early. Um, right, right. By the time I was a little older, I was really in the folk music scene in San Francisco. A lot of those people then became, you know, like Yorma was part of that scene. Right, and right. Driver, who was, you know, Quicksilver and, and Paul Kantner. And, but I, I was, I used to sneak out to all the folk clubs from the time I was 15. Right, And then right. I ended up in boarding school in Palo Alto for my last two years of high school. And I lived on the same street where at the end of the street, what, I mean, a few blocks up was the tangent, which is where Jerry played with right. his bluegrass bands and his jug band. And so I used to go there all the time. And what was the music shop that was right there? Um, yes. Dana Morgan. Dana Morgan. And Jerry yeah. taught there. And, you know, that's where him and Bob, I guess, first linked up. And there was a lot, a lot that revolved around that, that street there. Yes. 
And that that whole scene, there was a um, Iris Sand Pearl, and the, there was a bookstore there yeah. that was kind of a influential kind of political yeah. place. Yeah, you know, there was just a lot. I mean, for Palo Alto, which um, was sort of sleepy, really. When I graduated high school, we had an after party, and I um, the band that I, I I hired to play was the Zodiacs, which, which who I just loved. That was Pigpen and Jerry. Oh yeah, yeah. High school graduated party. So. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that's pretty cool. You know, some musical influences a little later. By the time I was, in, you know, 17, Buffy St. Marie, right. you know, I was writing. So yeah. I particularly loved Buffy St. Marie, Judy Hensky, some of the women who were kind of brash and, and, and writing their own songs and they were strong, were really touched me. Right. Um, um, and then... Of course, Dylan, huge right. influence. Right. And then, you know, then the Beatles and, uh, yeah. And then, but, you know, by the time I was a little bit older, you know, it was like, uh, King, huge course, influence. Yeah. Um, course, yeah. I mean, there's like the music that I love. I used to go here. I mean, I heard Otis Redding every night he ever played in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. I heard James Brown at Winterland. That wow. music was my, I, I didn't play that kind of music. Yeah. But I, love that music you know right right and how did you start writing lyrics and stuff like were you writing poetry previous to making music it was always i think i wrote my first song about when i was about eight you know i yeah. would write things and sing them and you know yeah. maybe earlier you know I, I remember writing some little funny song one day one time when my family and i were driving to um we got up really early and drove to Palm Springs to visit some uh, family friends and, you know, watching the sunrise. I wrote the song and I, I sang it like the whole way. They, my poor parents. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you start developing a career? Did you, did you um, move to San Francisco after, after high school or did you spend more, did you travel? What happened after, after Palo Alto? After Palo Alto, I, um, I graduated high school, went to Stanford for the summer in summer school and studied political science and Shakespeare and transferred to Berkeley in the fall. What I thought I would be like doing political science yeah. and, and some kind of theater, particularly I love Shakespeare. But when I was in the Stanford Folk Music Club, I was in high school, but they we kind of was like the mascot of the Stanford Folk Music Club. And, right. and those people that were in that club had gone to they've gone to freedom summer right so i was hanging out when i was like 16 17 with people who had had the direct experience of of voter registration and everything so i i was getting kind of a deep transmission about what what they were experiencing you know directly and you know because i i'd never i'd never been to the south you know right Right. But I picketed the theater in San Francisco when I was 14 because the, the the United Artists Theaters in the South were segregated. And so there was picket lines in the North. So when I went to Berkeley, I really went there because I, you know, I was a big Kennedy fan. And um, um, and I really thought that we would politically be able to change the world. So I yeah. wanted to do that. So when I went to Berkeley, you know, the thing I was ecstatic about were all the tables in Sproul Hall Plaza with all the political groups and 
I mean, I just would go there and hear everybody talk and get their brochures. I was like, you know, yeah. at that point being, I wasn't 18 yet, but I was almost 18 and feeling like, you know, now I can have these conversations. And, you know, yeah. in high school, you're a little more limited. Of course. Sort of the political sophistication. And I just was dying to be in that milieu. Yeah. And within a couple of weeks of being there, the campus police confiscated the tables and that was the beginning wow. of the free speech movement. And I was there for the first day, I, you know, the very first wow. meeting, I, you know, it was real, real active in free speech movement and was arrested at Sproul Hall. And um, so it was a, that fall semester was a very um, tumultuous political awakening right. time. Cause you know, I, yeah being in Oakland city jail, getting beaten up a little by the police, by the, you know, that was something that was sort of wow. outside. You know, I hadn't experienced anything like that. Before. Right. Life-changing experiences. And did you feel, uh, that music was, um, a good way to you, for you to get your message out and kind of. Me, you no, know, that was Dylan, you know, that right. was like, you know, there was like, the ballad of Hattie Carroll, the right. times they were changing. I mean, it was, those were huge influence. And I think, you know, to me, I think my drummer, why didn't you go into politics? Right. And I said, well, music was politics. <laughs> That's what I find so interesting. And I do believe now there is a lot of music out there. Like back in those days, some of the songs with the political messages were in the top 40 and, the, and on the radio. And these those artists were the biggest artists. So sometimes so that's part of why I um fantasize and romanticize that era um is because people you had to put your message in the music. That's all there was. You know what I mean? That seemed to be um at least what everyone that that I listened to, that's what they were doing. Uh whereas now it's you have to look for that. But if you wanted to be talking to the people that you thought were gonna work you'd be able to work with or even just be able to let them know we were all together, you know, people that you were separate from, but you wanted to express brotherhood, right. sisterhood with. Right. You know, right. Through music. You know, that's how we connected. So tell me about uh, connecting with uh, Ken Kesey and that scene in the Merry Pranksters. The spring semester of 60, yeah, 65, which was like the second half of my first year, which turned out to be my only year at Berkeley. Yeah. But, uh, I didn't know that time I started taking acid um some people that I knew it wasn't even illegal yet it was really so much known about then right right but it had an effect on me I was you know I was kind of a person of spirit and it yeah. really um let me experience what I had known but hadn't experienced in that way and just the unity of all everything the, yeah. Unity of all energy. And so it was life altering again. Yeah. And um, so I was doing that a lot. And I was playing with a, a band. I wasn't really in that band, but they were my friends. And sometimes we did things together and they played on that. Uh, that's that 45 that I made that I told you about right. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were the, uh, the band on that. And they were they were still all in high school. They were at Berkeley High um, and they had a band called The Answer great musicians and um, guitarist Chip Wright, his dad, uh, Dr. Samuel Wright was the head of the Star King School of the um, Ministry for the Unitarians. And he had been in the graduate writing program 
with Ken Kesey and Ken Babs and Larry McMurtry on all of those people who had been given acid or given some psychedelic, I think yeah. it was acid, yeah. by the U.S. military. They'd been paid to take psychedelics. Right. And Dr. Wright was in that program. And um, so that June, there was a big conference at the Silomar down in Monterey, right on the beach, this beautiful conference ground of all the Unitarian ministers, mostly guys and their wives. And uh, they came from all over the country. And the keynote speaker was Kesey, who I, I didn't know who Kesey was. Right. And the Pranksters had come back from their cross-country trip. Yeah. Um, but Dr. Wright had invited us to bring the band down there and play. So we drove down with our gear and drove onto the conference ground at Asilomar and saw this bus that was painted all these colors and these people in these wild clothes. And we yeah. drove up to them and said, who are you? What are you? <laughs> the pranksters. I'm like, well, what's that? You yeah. know? So that was the, I met Kizzy that night. Yeah. Um, ended up spending the night on the beach with them. He was really in a way, the first person I could talk to about a lot of things that have been happening to my experience on LSD. And he totally right. got it. Right. And uh, after that weekend, I went back to school in Berkeley. It was summer school had started. And a few days later, he showed up at my apartment and he just said, I'm coming to get you. You're coming on the bus. Yeah. I'm like, okay. And he said, you're coming to live at La Honda. And I was like, okay. And um, your name is Mary Microgram. <laughs> I like that. And how long were you with those guys? Until Kizzy went to Mexico, till he got busted oh, after yeah. we did the, um, the, um, Trips Festival, yeah. and he, when he pulled his prank where he pranked a, a, a suicide and left a car and a note on a cliff over the ocean and then went to Mexico. Went to Mexico and yeah. I stayed, I was still, we still did some acid tests after that, at least yeah. one, if not a couple. And then the rest of the pranksters, or many of them, went to Mexico. Right. And I really wanted to play music in San Francisco, right. so I went back to San Francisco. Right, right. And then how, then after that you met Mary Ellen and, and yeah. the rest of the crew. I was, after that, I was actually in the other band I was telling you about, right, I was right. in those guys. And then, then my parents put me in the uh, psych ward in the hospital for a little while. Oh, okay. Wow. And by then LSC was illegal and it was getting a lot of bad publicity. Right. So they, just, and they, they, there were just kind of a couple of weird things. They found a note that my, my good friend, Martha Winter had written to her boyfriend and they thought she wrote it to me. There were kind of like some mistaken things right. that happened that were wrong, but they just kind of were so worried. So they put me in the hospital and I had to agree to stay. I was under 21. They could have put me in a much worse hospital. So right. I was to stay in that one, but in my life, uh, sometimes occasions of um, apparent confinement in one way or another are often doorways for me. Right. And um, that was where um, upstairs in that same hospital, I mean, after a very little while in that place, I had, I got an amp in there. I had a keyboard in there. I had, I brought all my instruments. Oh, okay. It was kind of like a motel room. Yeah. And, and I could totally pretty much do what I wanted, play there. Right. Um, somebody introduced me on the top floor to the um, a man who had gotten in a car accident. He was the manager of Quicksilver Messenger Service. Right. I met him and started writing with him. And then, you know, subsequently I met 
the Ace of Cups, I was still in the hospital when I met Mary Ellen. Oh, really? Wow. So I could leave. I just had to get a job and earn enough money to uh, yes. to, to have first and last month's rent. So I got um, a job at Fantasy Records running the office there and doing oh, PR. Okay. And um, and I met Ambrose, who was upstairs. And then when I met the Ace of Cups, the band, we all came there and sang for Ambrose and he asked to manage us. Wow. So a lot of things converged. And when you guys got together that first jam session, were you guys playing, you know, covers and different things? Like, did how, how long did it take for you guys to implement um, your own songs and your own writing? The first time we ever got together, I brought my songs because okay. I had a lot of songs. But they sang um, Marla had, I think, one or two at the time. Yeah. But we started writing. If we didn't, it wasn't if it wasn't that day, it was the next day. We started right. writing right from the get-go we hardly ever did any cover songs yeah no i i just you know a lot of times when people jam for the first time it's just you know okay what do you know but um it's always obviously uh amazing and magical if you can put ideas together right off the bat then you know you've got something (laughs) there um and so I know you guys never really officially recorded back then, but you guys played tons of gigs and you guys were playing all these original songs. And I know there were some recordings that came out later, but what were some really memorable gigs during that time for you guys? Well, opening for Jimi Hendrix in yeah. uh, Golden Gate Park on a, in the Panhandle on a flatbed truck, just Jimmy and us. You know, So we're talking January, we got together. That was June of that same that was a few months later. Wow. Wow. It was early on. Um, but he, he just, they showed up and just played on our gear, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and he, um, the couple of months previous to that, uh, we had through Ambrose and his roommate in the hospital, Leslie, they had rented us a house in, in, uh, in the hills outside of uh, Mill Valley. Oh yeah. I um, found a house and they, they covered us to do that and to quit our day jobs and just work on our music. And um, Mike Bloomfield came to us and said, you know, I'm putting this band together and we need a place to practice. How about if we practice in your living room in the afternoons and you can kind of watch this band come together. So for a couple of months, we watched the electric flag come together. And that was Buddy Miles and Harvey Brooks and Mike and Barry Goldberg on keys. And Buddy then just moved into our house. They were kind of like our brothers at that point. When we opened for Jimmy in Golden Gate Park, Jimmy and um, Buddy just stood right in front of us and Jimmy took pictures and he was so sweet to us and um, was, you know, said really nice things about. Yeah, I know he spoke very highly of you guys and uh, on record a couple of times. And and, uh, I mean, that's just absolutely amazing, especially only within six months of forming the band and I know you guys opened for the dead and I mean pretty I mean you guys were playing with all the bands of and we did backup vocals for you know for Jefferson Airplane Quicksilver and um, Mike Bloomfield and Nick Rabinitis and another memorable gig was playing opening for the band at Winterland for their first ever show as the band wow a huge fan of the band oh yeah me too and when they, you know, Albert Grossman was their manager and uh, he and, you know, Bill Graham booked them into Winterland. And so it was us and the Sons of Champlain and the band for three nights. And when was that in the timeline? I want to say 68. Okay. So how long were you guys actually, you guys were together about three or four years? Yeah, really 67. The, sort of our last things we did were in 72, but more so yeah. 70. 
Right. You know? Right. And I know I've, I've read that you guys, you know, there's been various different reasons why the, the breakup happened. I know that part of it was not landing the right record deal. And then part of it was family, you know, forming families. But I wanted to get like what, what happened there at the end? To be able to take a next step in those days, the only way people knew who you were was if you had a record. And if you had a record, then you could have a wider reach and go play other places. And, you know, but we didn't have that. So we, we needed to have her make a record. Right. We right. couldn't get to do that. After a while, it was sort of, because I couldn't make that next step. Um, and financially, that was hard. Um, and then also, we, uh, Marla had the first child in the band, then Mary Gannon did. Um, right. By the time we had a couple of babies in the band, um, that made it a lot more challenging, you know? Yeah, that changes things. Well, might imagine right now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, and then from there, was it kind of like, okay, guys, we're breaking up, or did it kind of, you know, fall apart over time? More fell apart. I mean, Mary yeah. Ellen left, yeah. and uh, with her, uh, she married uh, Fred Roth, who managed the Sons of Champlain, yeah. and they uh, decided to go back to the land with one of the other guys, Tim Kane from Sons of Champlain, and they went up to live in the Trinity, by the Trinity River up in yeah. Northern California. So they, you know did their back to the land thing. And then um, there were the four of us and then Marla left at some point there. Yeah. Um, then Diane and Mary and I, Mary Gannon, and I still were playing together, the drummer, bass player and me on guitar. And then we kind of brought in our my husband and Mary's partner, Joe. And so we kind of kept playing in some permutations. And then everyone seemed to, still play music right or or in, in different capacities did you did you continue to write music and record music you know i wrote and was in bands i i moved to Kauai in yeah. uh, june of 72 yeah mary gannon followed me a few months later i didn't really think i was moving to Kauai. i thought i was just coming for a while that's like that's the hawaii thing everyone everyone i've ever met that lives there is like yeah i came for a few months and i'm still here 10 years later or 20 years later well, I came when I was 15 on a wow. high school program and because right. I really wanted to learn to surf and that was really hard to do in those days. San Francisco. Yeah. So I came and spent the summer here and went to Kapa'a High School and learned to surf. Yeah. So when the band broke up, Kauai was really calling me back. Yeah. I, I was like, okay, so I'm not going to play in this band. <laughs> right. And my daughter was two and I really wanted to raise her in a much more natural yeah. place. Well, for me, I love the Hawaiian culture and I love the way the children were much more free. And, 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 and especially when I was 15, you know, the children, there was just, everybody was auntie and uncle yeah. and there was this way where the Hawaiian culture embraced children. You know, the word keiki yep. is one of the words for children, but another word for child in, in Hawaiian is they, they're referred to as napua, the, the flowers. Right. Right. So they're just like, everybody's blossoms, you know? Right. And there was something about that that I wanted for my daughter. Of course. And then you lived there full time through the seventies or? Would you- yeah. Until, um, 1983 when I left and went to music school, that's when I, I changed kind of shifted to the bass and playing other bands then. And then in 83, I, um, I was in this band and, um, 
I had the drummer who was really wonderful, had, you know, had gone to Berkeley school of music, mm-hmm. you know, you'd really love music school. You, know, you should consider going because I, you know, I was sort of trying to catch up on the bass. I went to LA to see a, a friend, a composer friend of mine, conduct a score. And while I was there, I just thought, I'm just going to audition for musicians Institute in LA. Oh yeah. Which had kind of shifted from being only a jazz school because it was founded by Howard Roberts and it had been, yep. it was shifting into more. Just there were only three programs. There was percussion, bass, and guitar. You know, I just went and auditioned, and uh, you know, Pat Hicks said, "You should come, come in this, you know, in March." And while I was in LA, the first of the two big hurricanes of that those years hit Kauai, and it hit the house I was living in, which I which blew the roof off and blew and it hit basically all the clubs that my band was playing in were destroyed. Oh, wow. So it felt like a, like a, a signal, you know, yeah, like for sure. you really don't have anywhere to live. You might as well go to music. School. So through all these years, were you staying in touch with the other members of the band? Oh, now Mary and I, Mary Gannon, who was yeah. originally a bass player, yeah. she and I danced together here on Kauai right, and right. duo. And so all through the years, we played music together. And I was also got together with a group of women when my daughter was about three and started working on creating a school and the school opened when my daughter was five oh, and it still is in existence today. And we opened it, um, and you know, with 12 students and, but, um, it now it has a 40 acre campus and 400 students from pre-K to 12. And our Mary Gannon from the Ace Cups was the music teacher there for many years. And oh. then her daughter was the music teacher there. For oh, wow. So, you know, we all had musical intersection. We'll be right back after this short break. I know this is a bit of a fast forward, but um, in 2003, some recordings came out that were um, unreleased and some live stuff. How did that come about? Yeah. So there were a bunch of tapes that reel to reel tapes that uh, our road manager would make when we'd play shows. You know, he would just put a tape recorder somewhere by yeah. the side of the stage or, you know, they weren't like great board tapes or yeah, anything. Yeah. And they were made just for us to listen to ourselves and hopefully get better, you know? Yeah. So, uh, just rehearsal tapes or like Of course. And there were a few that, uh, so we had this box, you know, box of tapes. Um, and they traveled for 30 years and th- they were in different people's garages. Right. And um, they ended up, I think Marla got them from our manager's house when our manager sold that place. And then yeah. they ended up, with the Mary, they went through one hurricane here. They went through the hurricane Eva and Mary Gannon's garage. Wow. But eventually, uh, uh, Alec Palau, who's a wonderful musical producer, archivist, bass player, and works with many record labels, including we, including um, Ace Records out of the UK. Mm-hmm. He'd reached out to me some years before about that song I told you about. The, right. um, and he, but he reached out and he said, you know, we're interested in any Ace of Cups tapes that you have. And so yeah. um, the tapes went to him and he listened to everything. And that 2003 release, It's Bad For You But Buy It, was yeah. called those as well as that song that I 
wrote and recorded before the Ace of Cups, boy, what'll you do then? And then the audio from at least not all of it, maybe some of it from the Ralph Gleason TV show that we did called West Pole, right. where we live on that. So oh, it was okay. so that's that album came from that. And also Alec is like our our um he knows more about the Ace of Cups probably than anybody. Right. Um, with a couple of other people in a close second, one of them being Corey Arnold, who does archiving, who knows a lot about, you know, he'll, he'll show us gigs that we're like, no, we didn't play. No. Yeah. Remember we did play that gig. (laughs) (laughs) And then George bear Wallace, who owns our record label, um, high moon records. So, right. So, so then between two, and then once that came out, um, you guys started talking about reforming, right? Not really. Um, we had, we got a little website. Diane's partner, Mike made a, a little website for us. Okay. We were going to reform. I mean, we, every once in a while we would get together as yeah. two three or four or sometimes five for a few days, but we had no, um, intention to reform because right. uh, we all lived in different places of course. and um, we're doing different things. And it was really in 2011. Well, what happened was when that, 2003 album came back came out george bear wallace heard that record and he somewhat later was starting his record label high moon records and he reached out for me in 2010 or 11 and said you know i'm i have i've started this record label do you have any more tapes we love to release more of your unreleased music i was like i think we got the best of it you know (laughs) yeah but then george came out from New York and to LA and we met and started, you know, we spent the evening just listening to music all night and he was listening to, I had a lot of stuff I'd written. He wanted to hear. And and you said, I really want to help your band, you know, you know, so that was, yeah, 2011. And then we got invited to open for wavy gravy for his 75th birthday. Yeah. Um, at the show with, you know, Bobby Weir and Steve Kimmock and yeah. a bunch of, players from that world and we were invited to open that show and but everybody lived in different places and I George said listen if you want to do that I'll rent you guys a house and I'll get you a rehearsal space and I'll make it possible for you to play that show yeah and everybody signed on and that's what we did cool after that show the three of us who lived in California at that time was Diane and Mary Ellen and I decided we wanted to keep playing together. So George made that possible too. He helped us like, you know, get to where the others were. So sometimes they'd come to LA and everybody would stay at my house and we just wrote and played and wrote. So that was just guitar, bass and drums. Right. And voices. And after we did, we did that for like a couple of years, um, a couple of two, three months, we just have this intense writing playing time. And George was, we'd send him, you know, little iPhone voice memos and go, listen to this song we're writing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you need to go in the studio. You never got the chance because his label was a reissue label. And he just said, you never, there's nothing to reissue of you. And so he said, you know, find a producer and go in the studio. Wow. So that had our search for our producer. And, and after some, some that didn't quite work, we found Dan Shea, who yeah. looked perfect for us, you know, because we didn't have... We did. I mean, the only studio experience we had as a band was, you know, standing around one mic singing. Right. You know, and I had done, I recorded with people in LA and in the Kirtan scene. I'd played on some albums on bass, but it wasn't my, my material, you know, yeah. I, so 
it was a, you know, we needed somebody who could kind of walk us into the process and, and, and help us. And Dan Shea was that person. And um, so we credit him a lot with the quality of, of right. Uh, and and the songs that you guys brought to him were these songs from these sessions that you're speaking of. Did you bring back anything from all the way back? A lot of it's old material, right? So so essentially, some of the fifty year old songs yeah. were on yeah. the record, right? A lot of it, and then yeah. some new, and then you know some from intervening years, and then some that we wrote during the recording process or rewrote like a, a verse or something like that uh, during the process. But yeah, yeah, a lot of this was just the songs that we love to play together that we hadn't really, there was no one else that we really could play them with because no one else knew the harmony part to come in, you know? Or, so yeah. And Dan went through all our old material. Okay. And really listened. Cool. And so, yeah. And some of those songs, you know, we, we really tried to recreate like like Gemini on on the new record. Yeah, um, yeah. We really tried to do it the way we did it at this concert that we in, in San San Jose that was a benefit for the Haight Ashbury Free Clinic, and we had this recording you know, with like you know it was like terrible recording. You yeah, know? yeah. It's the only recording we have of Gemini. But, right, um, but the arrangement was the way you liked it. You know, tried to get that. That's um, so cool. You know we change or updated or approach the same song in a really different way. Yeah. yeah, of course. That's so fun. That must be fun to to do that, not only for yourself, but with your friends and remember those times and music can bring you right there. You know, how many bands of our contemporaries from that time don't even have all their bandmates on earth anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing thing too. And then also that you got to collaborate with a lot of the people that you were around back then, like Bob Weir's on the album Melvin Seals, who played with Jerry later, obviously, but I know David Grisman's on the album. Um, Taj Mahal, obviously, that song, which I love, Life in Your Hands. What was it like um, collaborating with these old friends? And um, did you guys just kind of reach out to them uh, as you as the album came together and said, oh, this person would be great for that song? Or how, how did that all come together? Well, um, it started with Buffy St. Marie. Okay. Buffy lives here on Kauai and uh, we, she was my hero, you know, Shiro from the time I was, you know, her first album came out, but then I became I was lucky enough to become her dear friend yeah. um, you know, on Kauai. And um, so Buffy, when she heard we were finally making a record, you know, I said, will you sing something? She goes, absolutely. So she, she was playing hardly strictly bluegrass and she had some hours off and she came over to Marin to our studio and I had already written um, Pepper in the Pot, which is on her first record. Yeah. And then, but there was something about the bridge. I didn't know it was like, it wasn't quite there. And Buffy and I, you know, she came out, let's do this with it. And she, we wrote the bridge in, in the cool. studio and she lead sang it. And uh, we love that song. That was cool. so that she was our, our first guest in the studio. We actually recorded Wavy Gravy before that for the song um, Basic Human Needs. Right. But, um, but we didn't. That 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 was earlier. So, but this was like the one when Buffy showed up. That kind of shifted things. So the next day, I was hanging out with her, hardly stripped bluegrass, and with Jackson Brown. And she said, "Yeah, yesterday I went. I played on the Ace of Cups new album." And Jackson goes, "I want to play on the Ace of Cups album." <laughs> cool. <laughs> so things happen like that. We yeah. reached out to Norma, 
And um, he said he'd be glad to play on our album. He was a dear friend from those days, you know, yeah. and sang on his record on volunteers. And, um, and uh, so when, and we were thinking maybe Jack would play on a few songs too, Jack Cassidy. Oh, yeah. And um, um, while, but we had sent these songs to Yorma and they were, uh, they were touring and Yorma played the songs for Jack and Jack contacted us and said, Hey, I want to play. <laughs> we're like, yeah. Good. So a lot of it was like that, you know, yeah. Taj Mahal um, also lived on Kauai for a lot of years. Yeah. And yeah. so Taj and his, his wife, Inshira and I, um, and their kids, you know, we did a lot of yoga together. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we go back, you know, from, from before Kauai when we played some shows with him yeah. and later we, you know, lived all on the same Island. Then his kids went to this Island school and Mary was their music teacher. So he was very wonderful and generous when we asked him to come sing on it. I've been watching, you guys have done a lot of performing. I mean, there was a lot of press and all this stuff. I mean, were you guys, did you guys expect that type of uh, people to embrace the record and embrace the band again in that way? I had no idea what would happen. Yeah. You know, we really didn't. All we knew was we were really excited to be recording our music. Right. And, and having the music you heard because it hadn't been. Right. You know, there was like, it's like, I kind of, for me, it's like having children that never got out to meet anybody. You know, you yeah. have these songs, unless they heard us back in the day. No one ever kind of hurt us. And also because obviously we write from the point of view of who we are, women of that time or the current songs, women now, um, there's a, a, a perspective that I think in terms of the diversity that needs to be at the table, mm. that we bring a, that a unique perspective. And um, so I, I think it was really important. And people would write to us and just go, I knew there were women writing songs in that scene there, but you yeah. know, that we couldn't find them, you know? So I think just sort of having that, you know, just being part of the mix and even 50 years later, just kind of having, being able to reflect on those times. Right. You know? Well, I mean, it seems that we're in a time now that is as tumultuous as ever, obviously. Yeah. Um, on, did you ever think we'd still be in a place like this, this far, this far down the line? No, I did not. I remember having a conversation with um, Alan Meyerson, who was the director of the committee theater in yeah. those days, improv theater in, in San Francisco. I remember we were walking in Sausalito and, um, and I was trying to tell him, but then I, we were doing them. Um, we had, we lived in Marin at the time we had gardens and I was like taking vegetables from our garden to the health food store and bartering for some things, you know, that we didn't have, you know, and I was saying, Alan, you know, there's in a little while, there's not going to be money anymore. It's just, everybody's going to be bartering, you know, right. it's going to be gone. And he looked at me, he goes to me, he said, I think you're a little naive. I was like, no. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, I felt because there was the free store in, in Hate Ashbury. There was where you could take the things you didn't want anymore and leave them. And if there was anything there you needed or wanted, you could yeah. take it. It was just an empty big room. Yeah. No exchange of money, you know. Right. I just felt like we were moving into a much more sharing culture and that we were all going to be getting along better. And so everything that's going on is to me, I'm, I'm spend, I'm being as much of an activist through 
things I'm doing and things I'm supporting, everything that's going on now. And I, I'm just, I'm just praying that, yeah. well, first of all, the administration changes yeah. and that, um, you know, and then the country changes direction. Yeah. Unfortunately, those, these choices now are out of desperation, you know, and it's, it's, uh, at a point where it's not just really, it, it's not going to be an option soon, you know, it's really just gonna, but, um, I do think that, you know, activists and musicians are, um, as valuable now as ever. Um, and again, it kind of draws me back to that time period. And I think in a certain way, uh, you know, my hope is that it's shining a light on the problems and hopefully the people that, um, are putting out amazing art and, and they're also, you know, putting the word out there that, you know, hopefully ch- I, I can see the change happening. It's just in a, we're in a, such a volatile state now that we need it badly. Um, well, Sing Your Dreams came out, or actually, no, well, I, I know it's on Spotify, and then the vinyl comes out in December. Am I saying that right? And the CDs are out now. And the CDs are out. Okay, so it is. So you can get it digitally, you can get it on CD. Um, tell me about how that process of making that record changed from the first, from the previous album. Well, the truth is that we, we just kept recording when we started, we started working with Dan. Yeah. We started thinking we'd make a 12 song record and then it went to like 18 songs. And every time we called George and we'd say, well, you know, we're trying to decide for the album, whether we should, because it went from a single album to a double album. Oh, I see. Okay. So, I, you know, we kept saying, should we record, you know, simplicity or, or life in your hands? And he goes, you have to do them both. You can't choose between those. So by the time we were, we had already like 36 songs recorded. Yeah. When the first one came out, we had to winnow it down to a, a double album. Yeah. So then we had a good portion of Sing Your Dreams done, but not all of it. So then we added some more and we still got more that we are, we have one more album that is half done too. Well, hopefully if we can get back together, like in 2021, we'll have a record that we can release maybe by the end of next year. We'll see. Wow. So yeah. you guys were just inspired, just putting down all this stuff. Let it, you know, he would let us say, he would let us do it because he loved the, loves our music. Right, right. Yeah, little great songs that are going to be on our third album that wow. we're really excited to release um, that are already, but then we have, we have space on that one for more newer material or old material that we want to redo. Cool, um, cool. Do. And then, uh, and so Sing Your Dreams is a combination of, well, Dressed in Black, the first track is a song uh, Mary Ellen and I worked on. Um, the started with a song that she wrote about her um, um, relationship with one of the guys in Blue Cheer. Okay. Um, you know, a, a, a short relationship or an ending of a relationship is good material, right? For, oh, yeah. So that was that, was that one. And we, kind of, we did it a different way and we kind of rewrote some of it for, for our current you know, yeah. So, but we love the song. And then Jai Ma is a real recent song that I wrote, um, starting on, um, on Dulcimer. Oh, cool. And it turned into, and it kind of drew on the, 
kirtan, the music that I've been playing in that yoga world. And, and, and that one has a bagheedi on it, right? On, on bass. And is that Kimok on guitar doing like the high life stuff? He sounds so good on that. I, I'm a, I'm a big Kimok fan. He's a good friend too, but hearing, I loved hearing him play that style. So cool. Well, Kimok is, he, we share the same birthday, October 5th. And he and the whole family come and stay here with me on Kauai. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Uh, Johnny, his son, I, I play with him quite a bit, too. And I've known him for a long time. Yeah, I love that whole family. They're the best. Yeah, I love them all. Yeah. You know. And I love his playing. They're both the, the just the whole the whole thing. But Bagheedi and Kimok together doing that, doing that weaving is, is really cool. And the percussion is the Escobedo family. Right, right. Sheila E and Juan and Peter Michael and Dad Pete, who yeah. we played a show in the old days and in, in you know San Francisco, and um, and then Mom's is even on there, you know, with some shots. Cool. We had the whole family in the studio. That was wow, great. that's an epic band. Very you know, cool. it was so amazing. The Escobedos. We had this beautiful prayer circle before we played, and then we recorded a few other vocal things that we just made up at the time and. You know, they were, they're just fantastic. Wow. Cool. And they were, they had worked with Dan Shea before our producer. So, you know, he was the one who reached out to them. They were just so generous and wonderful. So that song, you know, started on the dulcimer and ended up with that. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's Basic Human Needs, which is Wavy Gravy. Yeah. Um, epic song. And the, we made a wonderful video to go. And we surprised Wavy with that video, uh, on his birthday a few years ago. And that was just, you know, just, it, you know, it was really the very first thing we recorded even before Dan was part of the project, Diane and I, and Wavy went into the studio, another studio in Sausalito because Diane said, we just have to get a good recording of Wavy singing that song. Right, right. We didn't know what we would do with it, but we had it. And then when Dan got on the project, we said, we really want to do something with this. And that we bought, uh, you know, Dan really created the setting for that song and brought in a little gospel choir of amazing San Francisco musicians. We sang with them. I wrote a bunch of background lyrics that were kind of half Hawaiian, like right. Malama. You know, I've got this little background stuff that, oh, that kind cool. of heart. And um, so, yeah, so that was that song. Um, and we had put a woman in charge as our cover song from this record, which is Kev Moe's song. And we, we kind of racked it up. Um, changed a little bit of order and the lyrics and changed some things, but um, we love that song. And Dallas, our keyboard player, our newest member of the band, Kat Dallas Lee sings that. And, yeah, um, I love that one. And I fully am behind <laughs> that message a million percent. I actually so, just watched, I don't know if you've seen this, there's this like four part documentary about Hillary Clinton. And I was, and I, it, got me so emotional because I she just got I've I didn't know that much about her past too and like just the fact that she didn't win and and was just almost overqualified and it really focused on the fact that like women can't be too sweet or too hard they get they get completely screwed in politics yes totally I mean she was the most qualified person ever <laughs> <laughs> Once, you know, and, and the whole, and there were so many made up scandals and anyway, I, I so I, I'm especially driven in my, you know, um, in my belief there. And I really, really hope that that happens at some point. Yeah, I, I was with the Ace of Cups that night. Everybody went to bed, but me that night of that election. Yeah. And I, 
because it looked like Hillary was doing okay. And, you know, so I I was just, I couldn't sleep, you know, by the time the results started really going the other way, I was just so devastated. I was just. Yeah. I was living in Brooklyn at the time and that, the same thing that night I went to bed thinking, Oh, there's just, we got this, we got this, we're fine. And I woke up the next morning and, and it was just the whole mood of my whole neighborhood. It felt like we'd been bombed or something. It was just, just everyone was so devastated. Anyway, I was looking at another song that's on it that we're just about to release a lyric video to from singer dreams is sister Ruth. I I don't know that one yet. Um, but that's a song that, um, that I wrote then, and then kind of added to a little bit with Dan. Um, we talked about Gemini that, you know, that's our, at the very end of Gemini, we have this recording that Dan found of Peter Coyote talking about the free store and you hear this voice with some other sounds going on and it's really cool. Just kind of his, his little description of the free store on Hague. And then Dan's song, um, I'm on your side, which she and Dan, she brought that in and then she and Dan finished it. And it's kind of like, you want to want to like do a little tap dance to it, you know? And, um, it's a song that she wrote for her children and grandchildren. And then boy, what do you do then is the, is the song that, um, I never got, you know, the, my, my song from when I was 18, um, Oh, that was fun to record that. I, I didn't ever think I would do that because I have a link to the It's already been done, but then. No, that's, and do you still have the original recording as well of that? I don't have the 45. Yeah. But, um, there's only two known ones in existence and one sold for $10,000. Wow. They're one of the most like rare records, yeah. you know. So, but, but Ace Records in Europe, uh, in England, they, they released a replica of that 45. So you can actually buy the 45 and it looks original. And I have, I have the replica and then little white lies where Diana Leeds sings that that's, um, this a really kind of fun, rocking kind of blues song about, uh, about her, um, about a relationship that she, and then it's about trusting herself. It's about her, her, intuition saying this guy's not telling the truth but trying to wanting to believe it but then and eventually just like going no 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 (laughs) yeah you know because he's saying no of course i you know so she's it it was just a song about a time where she kind of grew into trusting herself more fully right Um, right. and she sings great and then waller street blues again is like the first song we wrote together as a band and mary gannon does a little rap in it about the hate ashbury and we wrote a new verse for the current hate ashbury and um then lucky stars is a song that mary ellen wrote with some help from me and it's really about um how grateful we are to um you know, to be alive and be playing. And, um, and she wrote it kind of for Mark Knopfler, who is, she really is a big fan of his music. And she was thinking about how much his music has given to her. And so she started out, you know, everybody needs a hero to make life shine just, you know, and she started out with just having those musical heroes. Yeah, that's great. That's a really cool sentiment. Um, And then the last medley on the on the record is slowest river and uh, made for love and slowest river is comes from a song 
it comes from an years ago, Mary, I mean, in the seventies or, you know, 1970, Mary Gannon found a piece of a poem on a napkin in the sleeping lady in, uh, in, in Fairfax and brought it home and started putting, putting the poem, just singing that. And then I kind of got involved and we took this piece of, a, it was a verse, a stanza of a poem by Swinburne, the British poet. Yeah. And it was a dark poem called In the Garden of Persephone. It was about death. But we kind of took it from there and made it, you know, shifted the meaning and then wrote verses for it. And so that's the slowest river, even the slowest river winds ever to the sea. Mary Gannon had, had written um, this, this kind of mantric song, Made for Love, and um, we were made for love and she always sang it with slowest river and then um, i wrote some spoken word verses to go in there and so um and slowest river is a song that that jackson sings on with us well thank you for the the breakdown of the of the album it's always cool to hear where the influence comes from and um what the songs mean to the artist because you know i i've listened to both both albums but it's it's just a different experience to hear it uh, from your from your description now it'll hit me in a different way and uh, so is there a plan I mean obviously no one knows what's going to happen now <laughs> when we can play shows but I'm assuming that you guys will will hopefully get back together when things clear up we really love it yeah. you know yesterday we got we did our first well we turned in our first thing you know where you're all in little boxes all singing yeah, I yeah. we did one for um Joe Sumner, um, Sting's son, is releasing the song, and we got invited to, to you know, be in the boxes. <laughs> so we, um, cool. so we did that, and that was like the first for Dallas. Our keyboard player has been doing that the whole time. She's got a really nice home studio, and she's, got, yeah. you know, she, but the rest of us are less, less technical. Yeah. And um, so, but we we pulled it off and and sent it in yesterday, and Joe loved it. So we're like, all right, you know, our cool. first. Our first endeavor at that, but you know we can't wait to be all yeah. playing together again because um, that's where we that's where we come up with things, you know, and that's where we try things and try and sit around and sing with a guitar and, and there's just like harmonies and background and lines, you know. So it's very we're you know kind of our process is very, um, you know, it's not like we couldn't do it, you know, where somebody sends you a track and you do something. But that's really not us. Yeah, you know? I I find that hard to do as well. It's it's been hard for me to adapt. Um, but you know, I've been doing sessions and a lot of things like this. But there's definitely nothing like being in the room, you know, and also with an audience. Right. <laughs> that, help. that helps too. Yeah, you know, I you know Steve Kimmel. One of the things Steve said to me before is like when they set up cameras. He says he always wants the camera to be on the stage looking at the audience. Yeah. He, says, I, he says, I know what the band looks like. I know what I look like. I don't need to see that. Well, hopefully um, I'll be able to see you in person sooner than later, um, whether yeah. it's on stage or maybe in Kauai. Um, but um, I really thank you for the time and thank you for the music. And uh, I hope that Ace of Cups continues for a very long time so much i really appreciate we all really appreciate that of course of course and i hope (laughs) hope we talk soon thank you so much for the time again 
I want to thank Denise for being on the show. So great to have her on and to hear the story of the Ace of Cups. Before we go, I'd like to play a song off of their new album, Sing Your Dreams. This one features Steve Kimmock and Bagidi on bass. This one's called Jai Ma.
Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm